we're at a real transition point in the retreat right now. I noticed as I came in the hall that there were quite a few yogis huddled around the board looking at the schedule change for tomorrow. So this is the outward manifestation of the shift that's happening. So the schedule is going to be changing. Speaking is going to begin. After three months or six weeks of being in silence, that's a huge shift. It's an interesting time in the retreat. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have seen your thoughts shift to the next, what's going to be happening next, to future thoughts, planning, what are the next few days going to be like, what is it going to be like when I go home? Often at this point in retreat, people are wondering, how am I going to take this practice home with me? How can I bring some of what I've learned here into my daily life? The structure of retreat is ideal for cultivating mindfulness. It's ideal for the concentration and continuity of mindfulness. And our daily lives are not that way. The other night, Sally talked about the eight worldly winds. And we get blown around by all of those conditions, the conditions of praise and blame, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute. Truly, this practice is going against the current of our culture. So it's challenging. It's challenging to bring this practice into our life outside of intensive retreat. So that's what I'd like to talk about this evening. This is a topic that I really love. It's been a very integral part of my own practice. In fact, when I began my practice, I wasn't at all interested in sitting meditation. I didn't even think I would ever, ever do that. I thought, why would anybody do that? But I was having a great deal of difficulty, in particular with some overwhelming emotions, and I was very interested in understanding my mind. And as I began in my practice, I began looking at my mind in my daily life using mindfulness techniques that I read about. And at some point I began to think or realize after I think about three months of this and I began to have some real insights into how my mind functioned, I began to realize maybe the reason they call it practice is because it helps to practice this sitting on a cushion, and then you can take it more into your daily life. 
So that's why I began sitting. So this practice of uh, daily life mindfulness was my first practice. And I'd like to share with you some of what I've learned about bringing this mindfulness practice into daily life through some examples of ways that I've practiced myself. It's going to be a really practical talk. (laughs) So in those first few months of my practice, I read a book by Joko Beck called Everyday Zen. And I had another one by her at that, around that same time called Nothing Special. In one of those two books, she talked about working at bringing our practice into our daily life and said, it's not such a good idea to think that you're going to be able to be continuously mindful throughout the day. Don't, don't even try for that because it's just setting yourself up for failure. She suggested instead picking a few projects, mindfulness projects, to work on where you could begin to see yourself connecting with those things so that it would give you a sense of progress. I really connected with this uh, example or this idea of not trying to be mindful throughout the day. In my early 20s, I had read a a book, which many of you have probably heard of, Thich Nhat Hanh's Miracle of Mindfulness. And I loved this book. I read this book every evening before I went to bed and thought, wow, this sounds so cool, this mindfulness stuff. I'm going to do this tomorrow when I go to work. And the next time I would remember it would be when I picked up the book the next night. And after some nights of that, I thought, well, obviously I can't do this. Put the book aside and didn't uh, meet mindfulness again for another 15 years. But when I did meet it again, I was in a highly motivated state because I was in some very, very difficult emotional states that were making me almost non-functional at times. So I was very motivated to see what could be done. How could I meet these states of mind? So after reading these books by Joko Beck, I decided to pick, pick two projects in my day. One was an emotion that was just completely out of control for me, one that was making my life quite difficult at times. It was a a very strong anger that I was experiencing. And the other was a very neutral experience that happened throughout my day. And I was a Peace Corps volunteer at the time. I was uh, working in uh, the development bank in the, on the, in the country where I was uh, assigned. And so I was a computer uh, volunteer. And one of the things I did regularly throughout my day was to switch between DOS and Windows on the computer. So I picked this as my other project. 
okay, I'm going to, I'm going to notice, I'm going to be mindful when I switch between DOS and Windows. Now, I didn't know much about mindfulness at this point. I had had no instructions, no teachers telling me what to do. I had read this book. So I didn't have a lot of tools for these projects, but just this idea of be mindful. You know, so I didn't, I didn't actually know much. But I began working with this. With this neutral event, initially, I often found that I remembered long after the events had happened many times. Like, I would be going to bed at night, and I'd remember. I, I had told myself I was going to pay attention when I switched between DOS and Windows, and I didn't remember it once today. Well, fortunately, to my credit this time, I didn't say, well, obviously I can't do this. But I just said, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again. And this is one of the keys to practice in daily life. This, I'm going to try again. Just noticing when you have not been mindful and making the resolve to try again. So fortunately, I had this somehow. This, this resolve came up, and I just continued saying to myself, I'm going to, to notice this. I'm going to pay attention to this. And when I look back on it, actually, that moment of remembering, that's the first moment of the mindfulness beginning around that particular thing. So even though I didn't remember right while I was switching between DOS and Windows, even though I remembered when I was going to bed at night, that was the first, that was, it was kicking in. The mindfulness was beginning in that moment of remembering. It's just like coming back to the breath, just like waking up and realizing, oh, I've forgotten. I'm not with the breath. In that moment, there is a mindfulness, and we come back. So in this case, I couldn't come back to switching between DOS and Windows because I was going to bed at night, but... (laughs) But I made that resolve. I'll I'll keep trying. And what happened is that over time, over days, even weeks, of making this resolve, I began to notice that I was remembering closer to the event. So I would remember at the end of the morning, for example, right before lunch, oh, I forgot. And then it got to the point where I'd remember a few minutes after it happened. And I could begin to see, I actually could see, oh, you know, this, this resolve is actually getting me closer to the event, this resolve to wake up for this particular thing. And at some point, I remembered right after it happened, just right after. It's like, oh, it just happened. The other thing that I was doing in this whole exercise was when I remembered, I was just noticing, well, I'm mindful now. You know, I remembered now. What's happening right now? So just taking that in, in a very light way. And at some point, right as I was switching between DOS and Windows, I remembered. And at that point, right around that point, that event the switching between DOS and Windows, became like a mindfulness bell for me. So that as I switched between DOS and Windows, 
it like triggered the mindfulness to just do that activity. So this is, a, this is one technique that I really like to suggest to people in practice in daily life. Picking something neutral that happens regularly throughout your day and resolving to pay attention to it. Bringing the mindfulness to that over and over again. And it will begin to function as a mindfulness bell for you. And as you are in that experience of whatever your chosen activity is, just very, in a very light way, just notice what's going on. What's, what's the attitude in the mind? What's the bodily posture? Is there tension? Is there tightness? And it, this is not something to try to hold on to. It's not like trying to grasp onto the mindfulness at this point and say, okay, now I'm going to stay mindful just in a really light way, noticing what's happening right now. If you pick something that happens regularly throughout your day, I picked something that was happening every 15 or 20 minutes for me during my work day. It begins to bring a thread of mindfulness throughout your day. Just a little few moments of check-in, check-in, check-in to what's happening. So That's one way that I worked with this, one of these projects. The other project that I picked, working with my strong anger, this unfolded a little bit differently. In this case, the anger was so powerful and so strong, and I was was out of control around the anger, really, that basically the anger would just get stronger and stronger until at some point I would remember, oh, I I said I was going to pay attention to this. And by the time I remembered, I was in a full-blown rage. And I I remember the first few times I did this, it's like, oh, yeah, I said I was going to pay attention to this. What am I supposed to do with this? You know, th- wow, this is, uh, this is really unpleasant. Yeah, I'm angry. <laughs> I, had, I had no tools about paying attention to the body. I hadn't had any meditation instruction at all. But I knew I was angry. And I could tell about, I could tell the unpleasantness of it. But beyond that, I didn't know what to do with it. I'm like, well, what does it mean even to be mindful of this? I, I, I really was kind of clueless. But simply that recognition, anger, I'm angry, this is anger, just that simple recognition actually ended up being extremely powerful. Because over the course of several months of continuing to resolve to wake up for this anger, again, I I noticed this interesting pattern happening that I began to wake up a little bit earlier in the process of the anger. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the escalating nature of anger, how, you know, it can kind of start, and then it just, if we're, you know, caught in it or hooked in the story, it just gets stronger and stronger and builds. It's like the snowball effect of anger rolling. So I began to notice that I was waking up a little bit earlier in the process, that I would remember that I wanted to pay attention to this anger. 
before I was in such a full-blown rage. So I remembered when I was more at a normal state of anger, anger. And I could, at that point, again, recognize, okay, I'm angry. And I, th- I also noticed it wasn't quite as unpleasant as the full-blown rage. And just keeping vowing to come back, come back, I began even breaking in earlier and earlier until it was more like just an irritation. So just beginning to see, you know, how the mindfulness was giving me some space around this anger. It was huge. It was huge for me not to be in a rage when thoughts around this particular person that I was angry with came up in my mind. And then one day, and this was, you know, a few months into my working with mindfulness in daily life, I was cutting an apple in my kitchen And I was fairly present. I mean, I, I think just the techniques I had been using of noticing the switching between Dawson windows, paying attention to the anger, had a kind of a base of general mindfulness happening. And I was cutting the apple, and I noticed a thought appear in my mind. And the thought was being with the person that I was angry with, at a fruit stand. And I could see the connection between what I was doing, the cutting of the apple, and the memory. And I could also see in that moment that I was not angry, that anger hadn't come up. But what I felt was this, it was like a freight train of wanting to jump on that thought and think more thoughts to become angry. I was kind of amazed. It's like, wow, the mind actually wants to be angry. But I also saw in that moment that I had a choice. It's like, I don't have to get on. I don't have to think those thoughts. And I I stood there waiting to get angry. Because I had never had this, in, since, since in the last six months or so, or, or three or four months since I started this practice, I had not had this person arise in my mind and anger not arise. So I thought there was just an, that, that there was no way to decouple them. And I stood there waiting to get angry, and I didn't get angry. And I was so blown away by that moment. That moment is the one that really convinced me of the power of mindfulness. This is a path. This is a path that we can use to free ourselves. It was so clear to me in that moment, the, the freedom from suffering that was apparent in that moment. This can happen in our daily lives. This kind of mindfulness can free us from patterns. We don't actually have to always be sitting on retreat for this kind of work to happen. It can happen in our daily lives. So I teach what I call a householder retreat. 
It's based on the model of the sandwich retreat taught at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Boston, in Cambridge. And I, I encourage people in that retreat. It's a daily life practice retreat, and we meet Sunday and Saturday for a half day and a day long, and then morning and evening every day during the week to support this practice of daily life, mindfulness. And I encourage people in this retreat to pick some projects to pay attention to. And I definitely encourage them to pick something neutral that happens throughout the day and some other kind of project, that something that either might be up for them, some, something that particularly they have some juice for, or just some other, um, some other kinds of activities. There's so many things that we can bring into our practice. And it's helpful to make them practices, to make, to pick things, to actually choose practices to do, as opposed to just saying, oh, well, I'm going to be mindful. It's much more, it's, it's helpful in losing the structure of retreat. It's helpful to create some kind of structure in our daily life practice. So choosing some projects. There's so many different things you could use. I've used quite a few of them over the course of my practice. So I'll just mention a few of them. Noticing getting up from my desk at work, the act of standing. Waiting for three rings of the telephone before picking it up. This one, is, this one is good. This was one that I got from Thich Nhat Hanh. And it's good because when you actually pick up the phone, you're mindful and there for the person on the other end. So it's kind of a nice, a nice practice. The whole process of going to uh, the bathroom. You do that probably, I don't know, four or five times a day at least. <laughs> Three or four minutes of paying attention to that whole process from the getting up, the choosing, the, the need, knowing, the awareness of needing to do that to the whole process of walking into the restroom, doing everything, washing your hands, coming out. I did this at work for a while, and I had noticed that when I went to the, to the restroom that my mind was racing as fast as it had been before when I was doing my job. And I realized that it wasn't particularly necessary. And so I started doing this practice. And I began to see that when I did this, when I connected with my experience, that in that three or four minutes after I came back from the restroom, I felt like I'd had a little mini vacation. (laughs) Three minutes. You know, it's like, I didn't actually need to be thinking about my work in that time. It was, it was, it's a great, it's a great thing, this mindfulness. <laughs> Chores are a really great place to bring practice, mindfulness practice to. And again, it's really helpful to pick something, you know, to choose it, to actually say, okay, for the next two weeks, this is going to be my daily life practice activity. So chores, chopping vegetables, making your bed, brushing your teeth, 
all of the things that we do here in daily life that we've become familiar with bringing mindfulness to, it will, it will dissipate as you leave the retreat. And it's not anything you've done wrong. It's simply the way it is. But we can consciously choose to bring mindfulness to certain things. And with a resolve, with a determination, with patience, we can cultivate this mindfulness. I found that the yogi jobs here on retreat were a great um, support for the transition to daily life practice. So whatever yogi job you've had here, chopping vegetables, cleaning the bathrooms, vacuuming, sweeping, whatever it is, when you go home, that might be one thing, one of the tasks you choose to have be one of your projects. I've learned so much about mindfulness in daily life through the yogi jobs. Just ways to be present. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be um, the kind of really detailed, precise mindfulness. Saira Utejaniya speaks about a 50-50 mindfulness. 50% of your attention on what you're doing and 50% of your attention on the awareness of what you're doing. It can be really light. Know what you're doing while you're doing it. It doesn't have to be broken down into the impermanence of every single movement. Just knowing you're pushing the vacuum cleaner while you're pushing it. And a sense of whether there's tension or ease. I'd just like to restate one of the pieces that I said a little bit earlier. When you choose to do some of these practices, you're not going to remember right away. (laughs) You're going to forget. When you first remember that you've forgotten, that doesn't mean you failed. That's the first moment of success. That's the first moment it begins. So just resolve again. I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep trying. So for me, this practice of cultivating mindfulness through these projects has been very helpful. And in fact, you know, if I pick, you can pick something for a couple of weeks or even a month or so, and then move on to another thing. I find it helpful. It's helpful to keep refreshing or picking new projects because the old ones get a little stale. We kind of think we figured it out, and then it gets a little bit lost. (laughs) So picking something new. But I find that in the picking new projects, that the old ones don't completely go away. So that, you know, if I picked going through doors, walking through doorways for one week and turning on light switches another week, that when I'm turning on light switches, I'm also noticing the going through the doors. So it begins to thread this mindfulness throughout our day to do this kind of practice. And this has kind of been the foundation for me of just beginning to get the mindfulness into the daily life. 
Another area that I have worked with for practice in daily life has been around the paramis. We've mentioned these a couple of times. These are uh, qualities of mind that we cultivate as we practice the path. These are the qualities that the, the bodhisattva was said to have cultivated for many, many lifetimes before he became the Buddha. And these, the stories of the Buddha cultivating these qualities are um, told in the Jataka tales, some of, a few of which you heard last night. So these qualities are cultivated as we practice, and they are also said to be necessary for the awakening, and they are, they are also the qualities of the awakened heart. So these are generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness, equanimity. In, in Asia, these practices are considered to be the daily life practice, the realm of daily life practice. So these are really, really good qualities to look at in our daily lives. So there's several ways that we can work with these qualities. There's kind of two basic ways to work with any quality of mind. And in in the paramis, these are very helpful for working with the paramis as well. And one way is to practice, find ways to practice cultivating the quality of mind, the parami itself the generosity, the virtue, the loving-kindness. Another way is to look at what the quality that's its opposite, so what gets in its way. Look at when we're not feeling kind, when we're feeling impatient. So looking at it from both sides. So I'll talk about each of these just a little bit. One of the ways, one of the, the, the main ways or the first ways that I began working with these qualities was just to help myself remember to pay attention to them, to remember the qualities themselves and to um, highlight them in places where I might otherwise forget them. So I took little pieces of paper and I wrote the qualities, the paramis, on these pieces of paper and I put them around my house in places where they might be helpful. So truthfulness went on the telephone. (laughs) Generosity went on the door as I walked out the door to remind myself to bring a generosity of heart to the people that I met. Equanimity went on the computer. (laughs) Patience went on the bathroom mirror because I noticed that impatience arose frequently when I was brushing my teeth. So little things, just to help me remember the qualities and places where they would serve me. So this is one of the, one of the tools that I used. 
for the Paramis practice. With the Paramis practice, I find creativity is really wonderful. I mean, we can, like for instance, loving kindness has a very formal practice of cultivation with the phrases, and we have been we we, we have been working with some of those practices. The, the loving-kindness practice, the mudita practice, the compassion practice, the equanimity practice. And we can use these practices in our daily life. Not simply on the meditation cushion, but moving out into the world. At one point, I decided that I would use the Safeway as my meta-monastery. Every time I walked into the Safeway, I would just start wishing loving-kindness to whoever I saw. There's a lot of suffering in the grocery store. (laughs) It felt like a really good thing to do, (laughs) to bring that quality into the grocery store. So we can be playful and creative with these these paramis. Come up with, with your own practices. Generosity. My teacher, Gil Fronstall, likes to suggest to put a $20 bill in your pocket with the intention of giving it away and watching what happens around that exploration of giving it away. See where there's resistance, what the judgments are that come up around it. When you finally choose to give it away, what is that What is that inspiration? What is the motivation? So creativity, it's, it's a, it's, we can get really playful with coming up with ways to cultivate these qualities. And then again, sticking to them for a little while. When I practiced the Safeway meditation, I think I probably did that for a couple of months, just using that practice. One of my favorite practices that uh, both brought the mindfulness and the loving kindness into my day regularly is that I take a walk. I I, I take a walk most days when I'm at home in California. I've not been able to do that here so much. (laughs) The weather is not quite so friendly as it is in California. And on this walk, I, I would tend to take it at the, about the same time of day. And I saw the same people on my walk. And I would try to be generally mindful on my walk, but I really wanted to be there when I passed somebody. So that was my practice, to be present and to connect with whoever I met. Sometimes the person clearly didn't want to say hello or look at me in the eye or anything. I certainly didn't want to push it or make them uncomfortable. So in those moments, I would just do metta for the person. But over the course of the weeks and the months as I took the same walk and began seeing the same people, they began to get familiar with me and I began to get familiar with them. And we began exchanging a smile and a hello. And just practicing with that connection, that kind of kindness, openness, the metta quality of just connecting with somebody. And I began to experience a lot of happiness in that connection. It was quite, quite astounding, actually. 
I remember, I remember, you know, this one older man, and he kind of had to shuffle along. He was kind of unsteady on his feet. And he had the most beautiful smile when I met him. And he looked just like a, it, it just radiant when he smiled. And as I, I did this, when I see him, I would begin to, to feel happy just in anticipation of, of his smile. And then I began to check into how long does the happiness, how long does the happiness last? You know, just not trying to hold on to it, but just kind of curious. I noticed that it's like it lasted like 30, 40 seconds after seeing him. You know, this great upwelling of joy and appreciation and happiness and connection. 30 seconds for a smile. It was such a joy to bring that into my day. Play with it. Observing the opposite quality of mind is also very interesting in terms of looking at these paramis. For a time... I noticed, as I was paying attention to these paramis, I noticed that patience was one that I did not seem to have very much of. So I started looking at impatience, just noticing it, noticing it when it came up, noticing what it felt like when it happened. I began to see there were kind of two flavors of impatience. There was the impatience to get over something unpleasant, and the impatience to wanting to have something pleasant that I was expecting or anticipating. There was an impatience around brushing my teeth, a sense of, I've got better things to do than to brush my teeth, you know. So just this, it was everywhere, actually. When I began looking at it, I began to see that it was just throughout my day, how, how pervasive it was throughout my day, coming up over and over again, this very... Um, it could be just little tiny things, but just this movement of, of impatience. And one day, about two months into this practice of looking at the impatience, I was walking down the street and I felt the surge of impatience come up about, I don't know what at the moment, but just the surge of impatience. And the very next moment or thought was, I've been looking at this impatience for two months. When is it going to go away? <laughs> Oh, there it is again, <laughs> more impatience. I just had to laugh, you know, I just had to, it's like, oh, well, you know, this is just the mind. So just, you know, looking at, looking at all of these things from both sides, very helpful in our daily life. Another practice that I'll describe now um, about working with the paramis, but it's more generally applicable, actually. It's a reflective practice. We can use it to reflect on our relationship to these qualities, our relationship to these parami qualities, but it can also be used um, to reflect on pretty much anything in our daily lives in a meditative way. So it's it's an actual reflective practice, but it uses a meditative stillness to hold the practice. So in, in this practice was taught to me by Ajahn Amaro. So the practice is to basically settle and still the mind for five minutes or so, quiet the mind, 
pay attention to the body, the breathing, and have a topic before you move in, before you sit down, pick a topic that you want to reflect on. Have a phrase in your mind, a word that you want to use as the seed for that reflection. So if you want to reflect on these qualities of the paramis, at one point I did this with the quality of virtue, of sila. And I wanted to understand or to reflect on what the benefits of sila were. So that was the phrase I chose, the question I chose in my mind. What are the benefits of sila? So settling your mind for about five minutes and then drop the question into the meditation. Just simply ask the question in words in your mind. And then the practice is to not think about the answer, but to simply see what bubbles up. So it's kind of like dropping a stone into a clear, settled pool and watching the ripples. Drop the question into your meditation and see what happens. What does the body do? The thoughts appear. Just notice what happens. And then let go of that. Don't chain off of that. Don't think about that in the moment. Just come back to the silence. Come back to the breath. Come back to the body. Drop the question in again. See what happens. When I did this with Sila, what I chose to do with it was to do this for about 10 minutes a day, asking this question about what the benefits of Sila are. And after that 10 minutes, I had a pad of paper next to me, and I wrote down what I had experienced. No thinking about it particularly, just, just noticing, you know, writing down what I had noticed. I noticed loneliness. I noticed contraction. I noticed an opening. I noticed a feeling of flow, whatever it was, I noticed these thoughts. I just wrote down what I had experienced. And then after a couple of weeks of that, I reviewed my notes and began actually thinking about what I had seen, bringing the thinking process in. So this kind of practice can be used to explore our relationship to the paramis, or it can actually be used to explore our relationship to anything that we want to bring a meditative, reflective quality to, a choice that we have to make. This kind of practice can be very supportive for that. So cultivating mindfulness in our day, bringing awareness of the paramis, The third piece I'd like to talk about is about intention. And we've talked about intention here quite a bit. And it's that that subtle movement or or energetic impulse that precedes any act of body, speech, or mind. So we can know we're going to move before we move. We can know we're going to speak before we speak. We can know we're going to think before we think or know that we're inclining to an emotion before the emotion appears, as I described in that example of the anger, the apple, and seeing the memory. 
seeing the inclination towards the anger and seeing the choice. We can see this in our daily lives as well as on retreat. It's a little, it's more difficult, I grant you. It's quite a bit more difficult, but it is possible. So it's a really good place to explore. Now the intention itself, as we've mentioned, is it itself is neutral. It's a neutral event. But accompanying it are the factors of mind that give it its direction and its momentum. Whether they're wholesome or unwholesome, it gives the intention its... It, the karmic results of the intention are a result of whether there are wholesome or unwholesome factors in the mind with that intention and, and whether we act on it. So as we know, as we get in touch with that intention, as we get in touch with knowing what's going to happen before it happens, we can see the motivation as well. In that moment of knowing, I'm going to get up to get a glass of water, I can know the motivation. The motivation might can be many reasons. It might be simply because thirst has arisen, or it might be because I'm really frustrated with what I'm doing and I just want to get away from my computer right now. So in that moment of seeing, I'm about to get up. We can see, we, we can see the motivation. Very, very helpful. One, one excellent place to practice with this is in the area of speech. I know everyone in this room has probably had the experience of wishing they could have taken something back that they had said, of realizing just after something came out of our mouth, oh, I shouldn't have said that. So paying attention to speech is a very large area that we can work with in our daily life. And it's come up in the questions a few times, bringing awareness to our speech. It's extremely challenging. At least for me, it has been one of the most challenging places to bring mindfulness to. Much of the time we speak kind of automatically without even knowing what we're going to say. Much less do we have any sense or idea of how it's going to impact the person we're speaking to or, or understand the motivation behind what we're saying. One of the most powerful ways to break into this is to pause before you speak. That in itself is challenging, simply remembering to pause. If you can remember to pause before you speak, you have caught the intention to speak. You know you're going to speak before you speak. In that pause, you will probably know what you're going to say before you say it. And you will also probably have a sense of why you're going to speak. So the simple practice of pausing can reveal many things about our speech to us. So getting in touch with our motivations for our speech can really be humbling. 
you know, we really begin to see how often we speak out of wanting to make ourselves look good or wanting to um, subtly put somebody else down or even outright hurt somebody. Most of the time, though, it seems, at least in my experience, it seems to be with this little bit of me, 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 you know, this, this motivation to, to make me, <laughs> to present me. So beginning to see this with this pause, just noticing this pause. When you break silence tomorrow, I highly recommend this practice. You, you have enough mindfulness to do this. So really, I, I highly recommend this practice. And notice, I mean, you can even remind each other about this when you, when you start talking to each other. Let's try this. Let's, let's try doing this pause. It can be, um, as I mentioned, it can be kind of humbling when I, I, I the first time I tried this with one friend, we sat down, we, we were having a meal together, and we decided we were going to work this way with each other in our speech. And I saw a thought, you know, that was the, saw I was going to say something, and I saw the motivation. I thought, no, not going to say that. Unwholesome motivation. The next thing arose, no, not going to say that. <laughs> next thing, no, not going to say that. <laughs> At some point I had to say to him, I'm sitting here ruling out things to say because of unwholesome motivation. So it can be kind of, it it can be interesting. So it's helpful to do this with another practitioner (laughs) when you try this (laughs) because it can, can, you know, put some gaps in the conversation. (laughs) So this practice of looking at our intention. Speech is one powerful place to look at it. But if we are, if you're doing some of these other practices that I recommended or suggested, um, like picking something that you do regularly throughout the day, switching between DOS and Windows on your computer, you probably don't do that anymore. But <laughs> closing your, clicking send for an email, you know, something that you do regularly throughout your day. Um, opening doors, extending and bending your arm. If it's some kind of action that's an action that you do, you can begin to see the intention associated with that action. So when I was playing with the um, standing up at my desk at work, I got to the point where I knew I was going to stand you know, I could see that I was going to stand before the standing happened. So I could see the intention to stand. I could see why I was going to stand. Most of the time it had to do with just something around work. I need to go get a copy from the copying, you know, from the, from the printout. But we can begin to, to connect with this intention on a regular basis and connect with observing the motivation that goes with it. So this is not simply a practice that is accessible to us on retreat. It is possible to experience and see these things in our daily lives.
another large area of practice in our daily lives is around sila, around ethics. And this is one way to work with motivation, to work with seeing our intention. The way I like to work with the five lay precepts in my daily life is to use them as mindfulness bells, kind of as I was describing these other things. If, if I'm making a movement towards wrong speech, if I'm making a movement towards killing an ant, looking at what's going on. You know, it's kind of like a wake-up bell. You know, what's happening? So looking at the motivation, if there's a movement to break one of these precepts. So working with these precepts, I'm sure you've all noticed that they're stated in the negative, actions to avoid, refrain from killing, refrain from stealing, refrain from sexual misconduct, refrain from lying, refrain from intoxication. But they're also paired, I think Guy mentioned this, they're also paired with a a positive quality, a, a wholesome quality that is cultivated as we cultivate or refrain from the action. So refraining from killing is paired with compassion. Refraining from stealing with honesty and contentment. Refraining from sexual misconduct is said to be related to fidelity. Refraining from lying to truthfulness. Refraining from intoxication is cultivating clarity of mind or heedfulness. So there's a, there's a mutual connection between our mind and our body. The act of abstaining from things, by, abstaining from certain actions through the precepts has like a rebound effect on our mind. And that the, the, the point of interconnection between the mind and the body is this intention and the qualities of uh, motivation that go with it. So in the intention to refrain from killing, there is this... It can, it can come along with this intention towards compassion. And I saw this myself, actually. At one point, I was really working with the ants in my kitchen and not wanting to kill them. And so I had this elaborate way of working with the ants when they came in. I would corral them with soap so they wouldn't go outside of the line. And I'd slowly work them back to the hole that they were, you know, coming from. And and after a while, I, I noticed I got a little impatient. I'd start scooping the ants up and putting them by their hole, you know, so that I could move them along a little more quickly. <clears throat> and I began observing the ants pretty carefully as I was doing this. And I saw at one point near the hole where they were coming in, one of the ants on its back legs with its front legs up in the air doing the scanning of the environment like this. <laughs> it's like... I could just see the the panic. I mean, maybe this is anthropomorphizing. I don't know. But, you know, it, it seemed like there was this kind of alarm going on in the ant population around this event. 
And I just felt so much compassion. You know, it, was, it, was quite, it was quite startling to see that. You know, just this act of wishing to not kill them brought a connection between me and these beings. Sometimes people question, particularly in California where I live, why are these precepts stated in the negative? Why can't they be stated positively? You know, California is a really happy place. You know, we, we talk about, we vow to cultivate love and generosity. And so sometimes there's that question about why are they stated in the negative? Why are these precepts stated in the negative? Why can't they be stated in the positive? And I read a wonderful response to this question that I'd like to share with you to close this evening. It's written by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the, um, one of the main translators of the suttas. He is just a wonderful, uh, thoughtful being. One reason why the precepts are worded in terms of abstinence is that the development of positive virtues cannot be prescribed by rules. Rules of training can govern what we have to avoid and perform in our outer actions, but only ideals of aspiration, not rules, can govern what we develop in ourselves. Thus, we cannot take up a training rule to always be loving towards others. To impose such a rule is to place ourselves in a double bind, since inner attitudes are just simply not so docile that they can be determined by command. Love and compassion are the fruits of work we do on ourselves inwardly, not of assenting to a precept. What we can do is to undertake a precept to abstain from destroying life and from injuring other beings. Then we can make a resolution, preferably without much fanfare, to develop loving-kindness and apply ourselves to the mental training designed to nourish its growth. Let's just sit for a few minutes. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.